0: You would please turn with me to Psalm forty (coughs) three, Psalm forty three. Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For Thou art the God of my strength. Why dost Thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out Thy light and Thy truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me unto Thy holy hill and to Thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God. Unto God my exceeding joy, yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. This morning, we're going to consider... The experience of this believer, and this psalm is not um, marked as one of David's, but it uh, certainly would match events in his life, but really, we can make application to this to ourselves, as we should, and many times in our life, we're going to have similar experiences as these believers of the past, and God intends us to find strength. Uh, from the Word of God here. The Psalms are especially useful for believers. You know, Martin Luther called uh, the Psalm, uh, the Book of Psalms, a compendium of the whole scripture. You find every everything and all the scriptures in the Psalms. It's very interesting. Matter of fact, he believed that you, you shouldn't be allowed to be a preacher unless you had all them Psalms memorized. <laughs> He was big on the Psalms, (laughs) to say the least. So let's consider these. Let's go through the verses and let's look at what this believer has to say. Let's see how this might apply to us, what we can learn from this. This believer begins by saying, judge me, O God, and plead my cause. Now you have to remember when we see that term, judge, in the scripture, it doesn't always mean unto condemnation, uh, judging as a positive and a negative application. And we have to look at the context to determine uh, what how that is meant. In this case, this believer is asking for vindication. He's asking for justice because he is in a bad situation. A bad situation brought about by those who hate God and who hate him. And he doesn't go into the exact uh, particulars of his situation. And we can see how this can help us. And you should think of these Psalms in no other way but as a believer in God. It is common in our day uh, for the world to try to pin you into some kind of classification, whether it be by nationality or by your ethnic group or by your age, right, or political affiliation. And the world wants to categorize you in these ways. But the scripture only speaks that there's really ultimately only two kinds of people in this world. Just two. and That's it, two. Believers and unbelievers. The children of God and the children of the devil. And that's it. And that's the way you should think of yourself. Always. In the end, what is spiritual is what matters most. Ethnic groups come and go. They change. Depending on how You know, we marry and have children and what group, other groups you interact with, you know, what your, what your descendants might look like might be very different than what you look like. That doesn't matter. You don't find your identity in that. It it doesn't matter. Countries come and go. Nations come and go. Empires come and go. But those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God, that is something that's going to be till the end of the world. That there's going to be those two kinds of people. And so that's the way you should always ultimately think of yourself. And so this believer, when when he's pleading to God, it's as a believer against those who are not like him, who do not love God, who do not follow God, and who are opposed to the ways of God. The scripture says that everyone who seeks to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that is the truth. You can think of this psalm as as an application of what Jesus taught. The disciple is not above his teacher. And this was true. We see the reflections of Christ even before Christ came. We see it in the Old Testament. The life of Christ reflected in believers in the Old Testament. And we certainly will see it now that Christ has come. And so he's pleading to God to intervene on his behalf. Ultimate vindication will only come from God. It doesn't matter what the world judges and decides about anything. The world doesn't have the final say. God has the final say. The world doesn't get to decide who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. God decides that. And so don't be terribly worried about being labeled. We saw in the life of David, you remember, before he became king, he was falsely accused of being a traitor, of being an evil man. He was outlawed. Chased around everybody after him. But that wasn't the truth, was it? In the end, the Lord vindicated him. And so we have to wait on God. And this is what this believer is doing. He's looking to God for his vindication. And so we see here that his enemies are deceitful and unjust. And we live in a, in a world that is uh, not fair. It's not fair. Sometimes you're going to do good and you're going to be repaid evil for that. You're going to try to be honest with people and you expect honesty in return, but you don't get it. You might get deceived. And we have to be prepared for that. And we have to react like this believer does. What does the believer do? He doesn't go out and and seek to to vindicate himself. He seeks God for his vindication. He opens his heart to the Lord in prayer. And notice here in verse 2, we see the confession of faith. For thou art the God of my strength. This is the only place you're going to find strength. And I've learned this uh, in my own life. You know, there's some people that have a lot more natural strength and courage. And uh, it comes easy for them. But you have to remember that apart from God, that's just something of the flesh. In the end, natural strength and courage will fail you. Especially when it comes to the kingdom of God. And when when these things are happening in your life because you're seeking to be true to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be spiritual strength that you need and spiritual courage. And those are spiritual gifts that are only going to come from God. He's the only one that can hold you up in those times of trial. Do not rely on the arm of flesh. Cursed is the man who makes flesh his arm who makes flesh his strength. You have to rely on the Lord. And this is what he does. You are the God of my strength. This is the one that has infinite strength and power. The one who gives courage. When you don't find courage in yourself, when you don't find strength in yourself, that's okay. Don't let that break you down. God is the God of your strength. It doesn't matter if you have it in you or not. You ask God for that. And he'll give that to you. Matter of fact, a lot of times it's better when you don't find that strength and courage in yourself. Because then you're not relying on yourself. Then you know that you're empty. You remember what happened to the church at Laodicea. They had deceived themselves. They thought they were strong. And they thought they were in good shape. And Jesus said, You think you see, but you're blind. You think you're clothed, but you're naked. You think you're rich, but you're very poor. A lot of times it's a good thing to see your own emptiness. To see that you're without courage and without strength. Then you have to go to God. And then you're going to get the real thing. You're going to get a strength that's not going to let you down. And this is exactly what he's doing here. He's calling on the Lord. And he's confessing his faith to God. You are the God of my strength. I can rely on you. And think about the context here in which he's making this confession of faith to God. He hasn't gotten it yet. Look what he says. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. His present experience is that God has an helped him yet he's still in trouble he's still in a bad situation and he's mourning he's sad and that's the thing that uh for a for a child of god is the worst experience the worst experience a child of god can have is that absence of god Nothing is worse than that. Now the worldling, they don't know God. They don't know what it is to have the presence of God. They don't know the love of God and fellowship with God. So to be without it isn't a big deal to them. They they don't even know what that is. For them, the worst thing they can experience is some sort of terrible illness or, you know, losing their career or earthly worldly things. That's, that's the worst experience they can have because they don't, they don't know the Lord. but for a believer, it's to be in this situation to not only be in outward trouble but to be in inward trouble. And here we see this believer he's being squeezed. You ever been in that kind of situation where you're between a, a rock and a hard place and you're troubled inside? And you're troubled outside. And it feels like you're just being squeezed. And you got nowhere to run. There's no escape. And this is the kind of situation this believer is in. The Holy Spirit has given you this psalm. So that you can know what to do when you're in this situation. The word of God is profitable for you. So that you may be fully equipped to live a life before God in the way of righteousness. He's given you this, now you can see, okay? Here we have an example, now we can see the right way to handle it. He says, why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. This believer knows that nothing happens except it come from the hand of God, from his providence. He's able to go to God about it because he knows God is in control of it. If God had no control over these circumstances, there wouldn't be much use in praying to God, would there? God has allowed this. And more than that, God has ordained it for him. Your troubles are ordained for you by God. And ultimately, even though these wicked men are the instrument of, God is the one ultimately responsible for this situation. God makes use of the means of wicked. Now, these wicked men are responsible for their own actions. But God makes use of such instruments. And God is intending good to this believer in this bad situation. We saw the same thing in the life of Christ himself. as He's betrayed into the hands of those who hate him by Judas Iscariot, all of these things that took place. And the apostles made it very clear all these things came about by the will of God to ultimately bring about good. This believer is choosing to turn his heart toward God. He's choosing to do that in the conflict of these feelings. He feels abandoned. And yet, he still finds in his heart hope and trust in the Lord. And in that conflict of feelings, choose the Lord. Choose the Lord. Look at verse 3. This is what he's looking for from the Lord. Send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. He asked him to send out his light and his truth. And what does he mean by that? Well, very often in the scripture to be in this this time of uh, spiritual trouble, it's compared to being in darkness. Uh, to experience a spiritual darkness. And he's seeking to know the Lord's presence again, his favor. That's what he means by light, the experience of God's favor and the realization of God's promises. It's a wonderful thing when the Holy Spirit sheds abroad his love in your heart. And when you feel in yourself the love of God and the presence of God. When you have that assurance of his forgiveness, that's a wonderful thing to know God's presence. And it's hard when you've been a long time without that. It's kind of like being in a spiritual darkness. And he's asking for the return of that. He wants that communion and fellowship with God. In the New Testament, it's described as, Having communion with God is described as that light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have communion with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. You see, communion is compared with light. And and he's lacking that. And that's more troubling to him than what he's experiencing the hands of people who hate him. And it should be that way. Our relationship with God is always first. We don't see him complaining about the loss of his goods. You know, we we know in the life of David, if this is David who wrote this, how he had to flee in the middle of the night. Remember, Saul sent his thugs to come and kill him in his home and he had to go out the window his wife had to make a, a fake david there in the bed you remember and he had to flee and he didn't have nothing on he didn't have anything with him he had to close on his back and he had to flee and wander around escaping but we see that in his heart the greatest loss Is that fellowship with God. That's his greatest trouble. And in the end. That's the greatest thing we could ever have. Is our communion and fellowship with God. He says send out thy light. And thy truth. Now what does he bring up truth here for? What is the truth? In this context. I believe he's talking about the fulfillment of. Of God's words of promise. You know, this this believer, every true believer, is going to be 100% dependent on God's promises. God's promises of mercy. And His promises of mercy are the truth. We're dependent on God's promises because we don't have anything else. What else do you have To make a claim on God. Do you have any righteousness of your own? Do you have any good works? Can you promise God that you're going to do everything right from now on? Can you promise that and keep it? You don't have anything to offer God. You're completely dependent on God's mercy to you. And his mercy is going to come through his word of promise because God does not lie and he doesn't break his word. And so we see this all through the history of Scripture. The children of God are reliant on God's promises, his word. That's what they cling to in all their times of trouble. That's what they depend on for their life. That's what unites them to God is his promise. And if God was not willing to have people as their God, He would not have given those promises. He's given those promises to you for you to take hold of them. So be bold taking hold of those promises. That's what we're going to have to need. That's what we need. That's what we're going to have to do to make it to the end. We have to cling to those promises. And that's what's going to lead us. When the believer is lacking light, he's going to look for those promises. And, and the scripture tells us what to do when we lack light. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 50, in this whole context of Isaiah, it's these promises about God's salvation coming through the Messiah. And here in chapter 50 (coughs) verses 10, the Holy Spirit says this, who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? What do you do when you fear the Lord? When you obey the voice of his servant, but you got no light. You're in trouble. What do you do? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. What does that mean to to trust in the name of the Lord? Where does God most explicitly reveal his name? Think back into the Exodus In the books of Moses, when Moses asked the Lord to reveal his name to him, to reveal his glory. And in Exodus chapter 34, this is what the Lord says to him in Exodus 34. When God reveals his name, this is what he says. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. God reveals his name here, and in his name he reveals his holy character, that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands to a thousand generations is what that means. That promise of mercy, that covenant love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he does this without violating justice. Ultimately, he's going to do this through the cross. Because that's the only way God can give forgiveness and satisfy justice is through the cross. And that's what we are to cling to. The name of the Lord, His holy character, His promises. And then here in Isaiah chapter 50, at the end of that verse, he says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God Behold, all ye that kindle a fire and compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This ye shall have at my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. You see, there's some people they make a light for themselves. They kindle their own light. They try to make their own way. Find their own way of salvation and deliverance. But this is what they'll have at the Lord's hand. Sorrow. Lie down in sorrow. There's only one way of light. Now, if you turn back to our Psalm in 43, Psalm 43. He says, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me and let them bring me unto thy holy hill." To thy tabernacles. And we have to remember that this is written in the Old Testament before our Lord Jesus came. And the Lord had appointed the Old Testament rituals to prefigure the Savior. And the Holy Spirit blessed this and made it effectual to the Old Testament believers. He made it to where they would see Christ in these things and find consolation to their souls. Now, that wasn't true for everybody. That wasn't true for everybody that went up to the temple. That wasn't true for everybody that offered the sacrifice. It was only for those who had faith. Jesus himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews were all confused. What are you talking about? How do you know what Jesus, what what Abraham thought? You're not old enough to know anything about Abraham. Jesus did know. Jesus was there. (laughs) When Abraham offered those sacrifices, the Holy Spirit revealed to them what they really meant. He looked forward to the coming of the Son of God. He saw in those Old Testament things, Christ Jesus. He didn't have all the answers. But the saving truth of the gospel was revealed to them under those types and shadows. And this is important doctrine. We need to look at this. So let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. He says, Bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Now, if you... Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Paul spends a lot of time revealing a lot of light and truth here. In the early days of the Christian church, there was still a whole lot of people trying to cling to those shadows that came before Christ came. It's sort of like this. You think of it this way. Imagine you're you're standing outside and there's a wall. And you can't see on the other side of the wall. But as you're looking, you see a shadow coming along. And you can see the shadow of a person. And you know, ah, oh, there's a person coming. Right? Because you can see their shadow. And then if you wait a little while... Here they are. Now, when that person arrives, you're not going to sit and talk to the shadow, right? The shadow isn't going to be the focus of your attention. It's the person. Now, the shadow went before the person and let you know that they were coming. But now that the person has come, you don't even think about the shadow. And that's what the Old Testament rituals, that's the way we should think of them. They were intended to, to go before Christ, to announce his coming, to teach about him. But now that he's come, those shadows are dispensed with. We're not supposed to turn back to rituals like that, Old Testament rituals and so on. We're supposed to have our focus on the incarnate Son of God who has come. If you look in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1, Paul says this, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That means an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first tabernacle, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. See, that's why I think here in the Psalm 43, it says, bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacles, plural. And here we see, you'd say, well, I thought there was only one tabernacle. But if you look here in chapter nine, Paul describes, it's a convention of speech to speak of the holy place as a tabernacle. And the holy of holies is another tabernacle. And you see this in the law and the prophets as well. So that's what's going on with that. But notice what he says here. He says, inside this tabernacle, in verse 4, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way unto the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest while, as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him, that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, until the time of reformation. So this was meant always as a temporary thing until the Lord came, and all of these things prefigured Christ Jesus. So when we read this psalm, when we can make the application to ourselves, that now we have even more light. Now we even have a greater blessing than this Old Testament believer had. And so our focus and our attention should be to the Lord Jesus Christ when he asked God to send out his light and his truth, to bring him to his holy hill and to the tabernacles, he's asking for that revelation of the Son of God, the Messiah. And that is where our heart and our focus should be. That is what all of that meant. It says here in verse 11 of chapter 9 in Hebrews, but Christ being Come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He is the fulfillment of these things, a greater and more perfect tabernacle. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices were made over and over again. It says that they were insufficient to clean their consciences. It was always pointing to something future. And now that Christ has come, he has offered to sacrifice once for all. It says it right here in verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then if you skip on to verse 26, well, let's say 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here we see it's repeated here in Hebrews chapter 9. Once for all, Jesus has made the atonement. Once for all. There'll never be another one. And it need not be repeated. It is sufficient. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for all your sins. A lot of believers, especially new believers, they understand this upon their first coming to Christ, but then time goes by and, oh no, you know, I've committed a sin. What do I do? Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. He doesn't have to come back again and die on the cross. He intercedes for us on the basis of that once-for-all sacrifice. And you turn to Him. And it is sufficient to take away your sins. And you have forgiveness on the basis of that one sacrifice forever. What we do here in the Lord's Supper with the communion table, and they bring in the bread and the wine. This is a remembrance of that one sacrifice. It is not another sacrifice. The pastor, when he's given those words, the institution that Jesus gave, he's not, you know, offering a sacrifice that bread and wine is just bread and wine. But it is a remembrance of one's that once sacrifice. It's to call your mind back to Calvary, to what Jesus did there, and its sufficiency. That is how you were once brought back to fellowship and communion with God. That is how you once were forgiven. By God, and that is how you will always be accepted by God. And how anytime you need forgiveness, you turn to that one sacrifice. You turn to the living Son of God, who is your priest, your only priest. He only has a sacrifice sufficient and appointed to take away sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can forgive. Only Jesus can take away sin. And only that one sacrifice is sufficient to wash away sin. Those Old Testament sacrifices didn't do it. But when somebody says, well, it sounds like their sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. But remember, those were only types of shadows that prefigured Christ. And for those that had faith, they would receive the forgiveness of sins. But remember, it was on the basis of the future sacrifice. It was on a, not on the basis of that sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, but on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. That sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament was only as a symbol, a type. That's the only way. And so they had faith to believe that that sacrifice would one day come. See, that was the difference between Cain and Abel. Cain couldn't see that. He didn't understand that. When God covered Adam and Eve's sin, when he killed that animal and covered them, what God did there was passed on to those kids, was passed on to Abel and Cain. Abel understood that that sacrifice was connected to a promise that one day, one would come. A child of Adam who would crush the serpent's head. Abel got it. Abel got it. And Abel said to himself, I want God. I want to be with God. I want fellowship with God. I want this God to be my God. But I'm a sinner. How can I have fellowship with this God? And he learned what he had been taught. By his parents. About the promise of God. And about that sacrifice. And so when it was time. Abel brought. what did he, How can I have fellowship with God? He brings the lamb. He brings the blood. And he shows to God. I believe you. I believe you. And I cling to this promise. To have you as my God. And God accepted him. Notice. Notice. Abel didn't bring works. And he didn't bring promises. He didn't say, I want to be a good boy from now on. And that's why you should accept me. No, he brings the lamb. And God accepted him. That's the only way. And to this day, it's the same thing. That lamb was symbolic of Christ Jesus. That was true in the tabernacle times. And it's true today. If you want to have this God as your God, it's only through the holy hill. The holy hill where that cross stood. The true tabernacle, Jesus Christ. Cain never understood. He brought his works, he brought the fruit of his own labor. And God didn't accept it. He was mad. He felt like God was obligated to accept him. What's this all about? I brought. I did my best. Maybe Cain did bring his best. Doesn't say he brought his best. But what if he did? What if he brought his best? Maybe that's why he was so mad. He approached God on the basis of. He brought himself and his works. And he was rejected. Because you will never find acceptance with God that way. Only through the Lamb, And this is exactly what our believer here in Psalm 43 is doing. He has that same spirit of faith. The same spirit of faith that Abel had. The same spirit of faith you and I must have. If you look at verse 4. As he's looking forward and calling upon God to restore that fellowship to him. He says, then will I go unto the altar of God. Unto God, my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. You see, this believer would like to go to the literal tabernacle and go to the literal altar because in those days you you did that. You went to a literal altar to offer your sacrifices. And he's not been able to do that. Remember, he's banished. So it's a suffering for him to not be able to meet with the people of God. To go and experience the signs of God's presence. The signs of God's favor. But remember that God is not limited to any temple. It wasn't true in the Old Testament. It's not true today. God can meet you wherever you are. But the true altar, the scripture makes very clear in the book also in Hebrews. We have an altar. The Lord Jesus Christ is our altar. Wherever you go, there's an altar that you can go to. The true altar. And notice what he says here. Unto God my exceeding joy. He is fully invested in God. Fully invested in God, 100%. God, my exceeding joy. This is something that I've been trying to learn about in my own self. You know, as we as we follow the Lord Jesus, our experience is going to be very like the disciples you see in the, in the Gospels, how, you know, they believed on the Lord Jesus, but they still had a whole lot of baggage, right? And there's still a whole lot they didn't understand that they're doing wrong and that they're still you know, things they believe wrong, things they do wrong, things they're still clinging to, remnants of things that, that need to go. Our communion and fellowship with God is going to increase the less of other things we have in your heart. The less you have of other things in your heart, the more you're going to experience God. The more you're going to enjoy God. The less you rely on other things, the more you rely on God. The more you're going to experience that fullness of joy. You know, we live in a hard world, and there's many things that uh, we go through that put us in danger, or um, you know, risk. When we think about, you know, what happens if I lose my job, or you know, if if I get sick. You think about, you know, what if I lose my home? We have somebody in our congregation lose their home. What, what you know, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? The more you die to the things of the world, the more you're going to enjoy God. Sometimes when God takes away the things of this world, it's so that we can have more of him. And so you can increase in joy. Increase in joy. Because in the end, everything is going to be taken away from us anyway. You don't get to keep anything in this life. Nothing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not old, but I'm already experiencing, you know, the process of aging. Can't do the things I used to do. You know, we're reading glasses now. My body is failing me. And I'm sure as life goes on, other things are going to fail me too. But God will never fail me. And if God is your treasure, you will have exceeding joy. Do you want to be happy? You notice that the people in this world that have the most tend to be the least happy people. Have you ever noticed that? You don't have that ain't conspiracy theory. You don't have to go far. You see these rich, wealthy people, they got all the money in the world, they got everybody praising them, and they're miserable. They're all on drugs, they're drunk, you know, they've divorced 15 times. They're, they're miserable people. Like if that's happiness, save me from it. I don't want that kind of happiness. Listen the world will never be able to give you true joy. It's a deceit. It's a lie. The Lord Lord has promised you true joy. The world promises you a false joy. It promises you joy and fulfillment. But what you'll get is emptiness. So when God brings you low, it's a good thing because he's showing you the reality. It's, It's only when you have God as your treasure that you're going to have all things. And we have to be fully invested when he says, I will go to the altar of God unto God, my exceeding joy. I think about Jacob. and How Jacob, you know, he wrestled with God that time. And God said to him, let me go. What did he say? I'm not letting you go. I'll never let you go until you bless me. And God was pleased with that. It makes God smile. It makes God smile when you refuse to let go. When God is your chief treasure. And God's going to put you into situations to shake you up. And it ain't an accident. And it ain't a coincidence. You have to ask yourself, what is the Lord doing in my life and why? And look at it as a good thing. When Joseph was sold into slavery, it seemed like God had abandoned him and failed him. It was all for the good. Joseph had faith the whole time. He never gave up his trust in God, and he waited for God to vindicate him, and he did. When Daniel was taken to Babylon, captive, his country destroyed, now here he is, having to work for the guy who killed his friends, burned his city to the ground. He ends up in a lion's den one time. Gets thrown into this lion's den for refusing to compromise his faith. He trusted in God, and he waited for God to vindicate him, and God did. This is this is the story of the believer. This is the story of the believer all through the Bible. Or is that your story? Ask yourself, is that my story? Am I one of these people? Where the Lord is my God, my exceeding joy. Is my life one where I go through struggles? But I'm not going to let go of God. Because God is all I've got. Is that you? Because if there's anything else you're clinging to, you're not going to make it. I promise you. The Lord has to be your all in all. Jesus made that clear. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me, son or daughter, their own life, can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. got to be number one, thick and thin, even through the times of darkness. The promises of God are sufficient to bring you through those times of darkness. And he is anticipating to get the answer to his prayer. In verse four, he says, then will I go into the altar of my God God, my exceeding joy, yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. God is his God. And he's already planning on praising. He's planning for the praise. And that'll help you in your time of trouble too. Go ahead and plan for the victory. Even when it's you're sitting in the darkness, go ahead and say, what am I going to do when God brings me out of this? What psalms am I going to sing? What thanks am I going to offer? Go ahead start planning. It takes faith to do that when you ain't got the deliverance yet. And he hasn't even got the deliverance yet. And he's already planning on praising. See, that's a strong faith. Still in the darkness, but he's ready. He knows it's coming. And he's going to keep waiting. He's not going anywhere. His faith is settled on the Lord. On the name of the Lord. That's exactly what it says in Isaiah. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. That's what he's doing right here and that's what you've got to do. Because God is his God. God is the creator of everyone, but he doesn't belong to everyone. He's only the property of the believer by faith in Christ. Only a believer can say, God, my God. Unbelievers can say, God, but they can't say, my God. And then in verse five, we see this. As he concludes, he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So he's still experiencing, he's not deceiving himself. He still has this experience of trouble. He's still waiting for God to grant his prayer. And he's preaching to himself. And sometimes you're going to have to do that. Every Christian's a preacher, even if you're only preaching to yourself. But you're going to have to do this. And he's got to convince himself. Because remember. You've got a sin nature. That's militating against faith. You've got a sin nature. That says forget about this stuff. Curse God and die. And So he's got, to, he's got to preach it. To himself. And he speaks to himself. He's reasoning with himself. Why are you cast down. O my soul. Because if all the things he has said is true, he shouldn't be cast down. And he's got to preach to himself. He's got to fight it. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. There we see that faith again. Even though he's experiencing the downcast and the darkness, his hope is in God. And he will praise him. He's not letting go. He's trusting in God. To bring him through. In this psalm, the breakthrough. Is the believer's faith. That's what the Holy Spirit is showing us here. We don't see the deliverance. But we do see the faith. And because the faith is real. The deliverance is certain. If the faith is real, the deliverance is certain. turn over to 1 John chapter 5 and we'll conclude with this this passage here in 1 John chapter 5 1 John chapter 5 verses 4 through 6 For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God This is he that came by water and blood even Jesus Christ Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Whatsoever is born of God will overcome the world. And it will overcome through faith. And notice the attention here. Where is that faith attuned? It's attuned to the Son of God. The one who came by water and blood. Now, what is that water and blood referring to? It's referring to the Old Testament. It's referring to, remember, they had lots of the the ceremonies involved, the washing of water and sprinkling of water. Remember, there was the sacrifice and the sprinkling of blood. And all of those things were a testament to the salvation to come. And this same author here, John, he makes a special note on the cross When Jesus died, the soldier took a spear and he stabbed it into the heart of Christ. And John makes a special note that outflowed water and blood. See, that's where the true cleansing comes from. The fulfillment of everything that had ever been promised in the Old Testament is found in Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who bears witness. Why does it say that here? The Holy Spirit bears witness. Because you're only going to know the truth of that if the Holy Spirit bears witness to your heart. There were lots of people on that day that saw that water and blood come out of the side of Jesus Christ. But they didn't have any cleansing from it. It only, it only cleanses those who have faith. The Holy Spirit has to apply that to your soul, to your conscience. Not everybody gets that. But whatsoever, overcomes the wor- what whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. We're looking forward to the vindication from the Lord. It's coming. And so we have to cling to these things as we go through the trials of life. We need to follow the example of this Old Testament believer. Now we've been given more light. Christ has come. When Jesus rose from the dead... And and his disciples met him, he said, Rejoice. We should rejoice. We should always be rejoicing. Christ lives. The atonement has been made. And the Lord is your God. So let's pray.